This is a Federal News Network podcast. Additive manufacturing or 3D printing seems like the answer to a million problems. But if the resulting plastic parts are full of tiny cracks and flaws, well, would you want that as your knee replacement? My next guest discovered ways to detect and fix flaws produced by additive manufacturing. She may have saved a manufacturing revolution. She's a materials research engineer at the National Institute of Standards and Technology and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program, Callie Higgins. Ms. Higgins, good to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. What a kind introduction. <laughs> well, I should call you Dr. Higgins to uh, make, make sure people know <laughs> that you are a PhD in all Callie. of this. Well, tell us what you've done here, because uh, we've all seen 3D printers, and I've seen various health agencies actually make, here, here's an artificial knee or hip replacement mm-hmm. or heart valves, you name it. What's the problem here? Yeah, so that's a great question. So with 3D printing, specifically in the kind of 3D printing that I do, which is using polymers, which are these chains of organic molecules, what you end up happening is you have this liquid vat of resin, so it's like a liquid material, and then you shine light into it. And wherever you shine light, it solidifies the material. And you do this in an iterative process where you can build up a three-dimensional structure layer by layer. And it's a really exciting kind of revolutionary technology, except for the fact that inherent to the printing process is this need to incorporate what's called an absorber into this liquid resin material, which makes it so that the light can't go too deeply into the material so that you can print like bridge structures or overhanging structures. And this builds in this inherent heterogeneity or gradient in mechanical properties in every single layer of the print. And so you can imagine that if you're printing a structure and at every single layer there's this gradient in mechanical properties, there could be a lot of flaws that are introduced or failure points that wouldn't necessarily be predicted if you're doing some other kind of mechanical testing. By the way, we're talking not just about hard plastic parts like a knee replacement or a ball and joint socket type of thing, but also the 3D additive manufacturing of tissue replacement. Exactly. And so what's also important about understanding these mechanical and chemical properties in these printed structures, specifically for these bio-applications or tissue-like applications, is that cells respond to their local environment. And local environment meaning, you know, (laughs) right next to them. So that's, you know, if cells are on the order of 10 microns, which is roughly a tenth of the width of a human hair, you need to be able to engineer those mechanical and chemical signals that the cell is receiving. And if we don't understand what we're printing, then the cells aren't receiving the correct signals and it won't turn into the tissue that we're hoping for down the line to be able to put, you know, maybe an artificial lung or an artificial cartilage replacement. And if we don't engineer those environments, then we won't end up with representative organ. So to summarize, then you can only partially engineer it, but you can't engineer it deeply enough until you came along to be able to make sure that the fissures and tiny internal flaws are not there anymore. Exactly. So essentially what we're trying to do is first understand what's happening in the printing process and what's happening to that chemical change and mechanical property change during printing, and then also reverse engineer that. So change the exposure conditions or change the light conditions and change the resin properties such that we get the exact representative structure surrounding every single cell. We're not there yet, but the field is moving so quickly that it's really exciting to have so many incredible collaborators to to push the field forward. We're speaking with Dr. Callie Higgins. She's a materials research engineer at the National Institute of Standards and Technology and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. So your contribution then is a a way of being able to look deeply into the material and find the flaws and fix them. Tell us what you were able to do. 
So what we've done is, uh, and I have to definitely highlight my group, which is incredible. Obviously, none of this could be done in a vacuum. So my project leader, Jason Kilgore, has been pioneering, especially because a lot of the research that we developed is based off of his specific expertise, which is atomic force microscopy, which is a really cool tool that allows you to understand not only potentially topography at a very, very small scale, but also different mechanical properties and chemical properties. And so what we've done is build this instrument around an atomic force microscope, which is essentially a very, very small diving board that can come into contact or right next to a sample, and it can obtain mechanical and chemical properties of that structure just by coming into contact with it. And what we've done is build a 3D printer into that local environment so you can be sensing using this atomic force microscope while you're printing. So you can understand how this print develops as a function of different exposure conditions. And then also, we've developed some other techniques that allow us to understand the print after it's been printed. So say we print, you know, a representative, you know, little like tiny knee, and we want to understand what happened to the structure looks fine, but the properties inside of that knee, quote unquote, aren't necessarily known. And so we can cut that very, very precisely using ultra cryo microtome. Then we can go back in with an atomic force microscope and map the mechanical properties and really demonstrate that, hey, we, one, either printed exactly what we thought we printed, or actually, no, we didn't. And so how do we compensate for those flaws? Got it. So basically, this microscope is applied in a kind of feedback mechanism that corrects the manufacturing as it's moving along, so that in theory so the we, part comes so, out right. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's 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 the idea long term. I think right now we're more in the stages of understanding it and then having to go out of the system and then come back and have a new method. Uh, so in the printing process, we're not able to compensate during the printing. Um, not, not yet, but we're, we're going in that direction, certainly. So we're moving from the iron lung to the plastic tissue lung. That's quite a leap in <laughs> yes, technology over the decades. Well, let me ask you this about yourself, because your Sammy's citation, I can say it because they did, that you're 31 years old. In my day, you didn't mm-hmm. say a woman's age, but you're young and you are a highly accomplished <laughs> STEM type of person. How did you get into this? So I've always been fascinated by physics, and I've always loved the sciences, and I'm the youngest of four very powerful women, and so I've never ever really seen a barrier. I never really felt like I had a barrier, and so I came into my undergraduate program at the University of San Diego and pursued physics. I was the only graduating physics major. It had The program had a tendency to <laughs> weed out people, but I just loved it, and I never stopped loving it, and I knew that I wanted to either teach or pursue research, and so I continued on to go to graduate school at the University of Colorado Boulder and found an incredible professor who was applying physics uh, in the, from the perspective of optics, like, you know, different laser systems and combining it with, with matter, so manipulating matter using light. And so that's kind of how all of these technologies got married together to then study this type of 3D printing and then eventually tissue engineering. I feel very fortunate because I've been able to pursue and, and fall in love with a science that is so relatable. I think there are very few people that that are able to talk about what they do and have, you know, anybody understand and and kind of relate to the impact of their work potentially you know <laughs> you wouldn't want an artificial lung, lung <laughs> you know if, if say they were having lung issues i sure. think that it's just it's exciting to see where the field can go and is going and you're getting interest from industry outside of the medical right. field in this process that you are working to perfect yes yeah, so we're we're fortunate in that i was 
as, as part of your role in, in academia or in research, you go to lots of conferences to present your work so that you kind of get your name out there in addition to writing publications. But one of the vice presidents of Three Systems came up to me after I gave a presentation at one of these kinds of conferences, and he just was really enthralled by the work that we were doing and saw the value in it. And so we started those conversations about, you know, how can we really understand this printing process? And we've been collaborating with them ever since. Um, they've come out to NIST, and their largest collaborator in this tissue engineering space is actually United Therapeutics, which is a revolutionary company uh, trying to, you know, fabricate and replicate the lung tissue. So we've been very excited and thrilled to be a part of that collaboration. But that collaboration also involved Ford Motor Company. I don't think you mentioned their name. No, so uh, I've been, you know, in talks with with Ford Motor Company also kind of since the the beginning, uh, and they've they've started to kind of go a little bit more towards obviously the print to production in terms of automobiles, and so we haven't done extensive work with them, but we you know we continuously keep tabs and and we've hosted them a number of times to kind of participate in these these workshops that we've hosted to make sure that you know touch base with industry, touch base with academia to ensure that all the work that everyone is doing is, is serving industry and pushing it forward. And so they've been very involved in, in those um, talks as well. All right. Attention injection molding industry. The competition is on its way. Dr. Callie Higgins is a materials research engineer at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. She's also a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This is a joy. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And 
you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. 
uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <laughs> um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gain the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zell. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.